podcast one production. This is Radical Fashionism with Christian and Andy. And we're doing a podcast because what we're wearing is too good for you to look at. You look cute. Oh, sorry. Yeah, no, I do. Too busy, huh? <laughs> I was literally reading an email. I just got an email saying that my long-lost relative has died and left me $4 million. You look cute today. Thanks. <laughs> if I saw you on the street, I'd try and pick you up if I didn't have so many insecurities. Yeah, and you couldn't pick me up because I'm real fat now, but that's not the point. <laughs> Well, that jumpsuit's kind of hiding all your problems. It is. It is, which is surprising because it is a quilted jumpsuit, um, which I am wearing today. Yes, I'm segueing into telling you what I'm wearing, which is a quilted jumpsuit from Random Identities, which is Stefano Pilates' new brand available on Essence, and it's very affordable. I've also got a pair of Random Identities boots on with a four-inch heel, so I'm extra tall and glamorous, but I can't really run in them, which makes it hard because I love jaywalking. So I just kind of hobble across the road before the light changes. Uh, and then I'm in a Yoji Yamamoto turtleneck and a black acne beanie, and I have my new tiny little... Uh, Duck Egg Blue Prada Re-Editions 2005 bag. And my laptop, because I'm a working woman. Oh, look at you. Oh, yeah. Oh, tap, tap, tap. That's me, Judy from, I don't know, the secretarial pool. I don't know. I'm not a scientist. I don't know what those jobs are. And what about you? What are you wearing? I um, can't see you through the gorgeous mist that you emit through your pores. It comes out of you like spores. It's a thick layer of lalabo and poppers. Um... <laughs> <laughs> it's a scent that's hard to swallow. Let me tell you, people. If you could, if you could be in the room, it's like a mist. It's, um, yeah. Today, I've gone for uh, like a kindergartner cowgirl look. So yeah. I'm I'm in your YSL grey turtleneck, which I've appropriated from you. Topical. Um, and my my Moschino, my little pony t-shirt over the top, and then my cute little tiny high-waisted purple acne short shorts, and then my off-white cowboy boots that say for walking, and then my new Gucci Jackie bag. Check it. Well, as we were talking about today when we called each other to figure out what we were going to wear to the podcast, which is ironic because it is not a visual medium, uh, you were debating whether to wear those shorts or jean shorts, but we came to the realisation that it's really important for you to wear the purple shorts because how else will people know if yep. you own purple shorts? Well, and the main issue with wearing jean shorts is that they're not purple shorts. Today we're talking about appropriation. Christian, why don't you, for us all, define what cultural appropriation within the, the landscape of the fashion industry, what that means? I suppose appropriation in terms of fashion is a bastard... Bast... Basket-sized. No, I agree. (laughs) (laughs) It's basically taking ideas, concepts, images of different cultures, typically ones that are disadvantaged, and using them in a privileged way that typically white people can only really do. Although there is a lot of emotional and historical connections to the iconography that is used in cultural appropriation, and although I guess in some context it's good to allow it a platform to be seen by, you know, a wider community, which is something fashion can do. It is bad because at the end of the day, they are making money, commercial, financial, capitalist success with none of that revenue actually pouring back into the community where these things originated from. Both in terms of platform and actual money. Absolutely. So I think that another word that I think is inherently tied to cultural appropriation 
but maybe doesn't get used a lot. And I have kind of used this word to help me define what I feel is culturally appropriated in a negative way is plagiarism. Do I feel like it has been plagiarized and bastardized from another community in order to take my money? And if that's a case, neg. I also think that it's very interesting with social media, the jury has completely changed. We all are able to process these images and make people accountable uh, when we see that there are injustices. I think cancel culture is dangerous. And I want to, I do want to have this early on in this conversation that I don't think it is a good And I don't think that it is a positive thing to do that if somebody does make a misstep or they do do something wrong, they are quote unquote cancelled and thrown in the bin. But we should educate me. I think a really great example of that is when Gucci a few years ago, they did a whole collection which referenced someone called Dapper Dan, who was a suit maker in Harlem in New York. And it had taken a lot of influence from him without any sort of ownership or any kind of kickbacks for Dan. And then basically the next collection, they included him. He sort of did a capsule collection. He was in their campaign for it. And it was the fact that they had sort of realized that they had made a mistake and actually went out of their way to reprimand themselves and rectify. Absolutely. We also have definitely made our mistakes. Um, I know that you have made much more than anyone else listening. Oh my God. So would you like to share a few? Yes, I will. I will in the, in the, in the spirit of clearing my conscience, apologizing, and trying to work towards being a better me, I, I will. The worst that I can think of in my mind. Actually, there's two really bad ones. The worst, worst one was I went to, there used to be a, like a gay club night on in Sydney that was called Gay Bash which is bad enough in itself. It's kind of and funny if it's run by gays. It was run by gays. One night, the theme was turning Japanese I wore a Vietnamese rice picking hat oh. with a mesh singlet and like drop crutched fisherman pants. This was in 2008. And do you know what? I was the most celebrated person there. I had my photo taken by like the coolest photographers. We had no idea how offensive that was. It was like not even a thing. And do you know what was even more scary? I bought that outfit that day. It was that easy for me to find a Vietnamese rice picker's hat and I ripped the ribbon off it and I was like, this is ugly. I'm going to change the ribbon. The second was I went to a music festival. This would have been 2011, 2012, and I literally wore an Indian headdress. That's so bad. And do you want to know the worst thing? I was like one of at least 100 people in one. What? Yeah. I wore, a, I wore a Harley Davidson singlet, ripped jeans, an Indian headdress. Oh, and I had paint on my face, like in like a tribal-esque pattern. I had no understanding what the f*** I was doing. I have so much shame. What attracted you to... Was it as simple as just feathers, it looked good. funny? It looked good. But also in that time, that was like... It was like a... That was a saturated image. It, yeah. it maybe wasn't like... It was still daring. Like it was fashion forward. But like... You know, that like I had picked it up from seeing images, seeing other people doing it. It was in campaigns. Like it was a big thing. Like I was not the only one in one. It is really revolting. Like I can look back and I can be like, you're an idiot for wearing the rice picker hat. You're an even bigger idiot for wearing that feather headdress to a music festival. But still now I'm still trying to grow and be better. 
I think the difference is I can check check myself now. When I had that rice pickers hat on at yep. the Oxford hotel dancing to Robins, dancing on my own, I had no Damn. idea. Now I go home and I go, you're a shitty, shitty person. You need to grow up. And the next time I won't do it. And that at least I can be proud of that. You kind of reminded me of something that I saw of Beyonce from a few years ago where she posted some images of herself in traditional Indian dress in a sari. And a lot of people were criticizing her, mainly white men, to be honest, saying, well, why can she wear this just because she's a person of color when if a white woman were to wear this, she would be persecuted? And basically everyone's response was the fact that there was permission granted to Beyonce. She was at an Indian wedding where that type of dress was expected and the fact that that is the situation there, the context of what she was wearing, that completely changes it. It's not that she was going to a school formal and she decided that this was a cute sari, so she wanted to wear it. Completely. We're living in the biggest civil rights movement in history. More people are engaged globally right now about the civil rights of people of colour in America and obviously, by extension, our shorts than ever before. And I know that sometimes the information that we're getting is not Australian-focused, but we need to start making it Australian-focused. There's even an issue, I feel, with the fact that we haven't appropriated Indigenous culture enough because we haven't even given it that worth yet, and that makes me really angry. I really started to meditate on that topic when I was doing research for this. I was like, I couldn't find really many examples of where we have appropriated Indigenous culture, and that in itself was disrespectful. I was like, we through colonialization and how stupid we are, we're still struggling to find value in one of the oldest and most like historically rich cultures that has existed on the planet. Like, so although it might sound like it's an American problem, I actually think it's an even worse problem here because we haven't even started to cross the road. And that is terrifying to me. Like the fact that we're still like looking across the shores and being like, you need to fix that not even realising we're probably 200 years behind here. Poodles. If you don't have legs, you can't wear high heels. And if you don't have a brain, here's a history segment. Watch closely. Welcome to the Radical Fashionism School of Fashion for the Gifted. And the not-so-gifted. I love it. When doing a history segment about cultural appropriation, I also realised that that, in a way, is appropriating somebody's story. Um, And, look, to be honest, I was going to do something flippant about gays because, like, I can hide behind my minority status. But then I said, no. I said, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to hide behind my minority status, and I'm not going to give you a history lesson in its traditional incantation on this show. Instead, I'm going to teach you something to that confirm, I taught myself. To confirm, just quickly, you're not going to give us a traditional history statement because we're checking uh, our minority and our privilege opposed to laziness, right? Yes, no, I've actually done more research on this than I've done on anything else for Mm -hmm. this podcast. Just making sure. So I decided to deconstruct why people and historically why people get so outraged when white women have braids. Can I just intersect here and say that the reason that a lot of white people don't understand why there is so much aggression towards these hairstyles, it's because they don't experience the same microaggressions that people of colour do when they wear them. Absolutely. And that's, that's the root issue of it, yeah. is that you can wear these and there is no issue. Whilst if a black person wears it, they are discriminated against. Yeah, that's not every white person who wears a black hairstyle, you know, is a racist or has ill intentions. But you need to understand and, you know, that just because you saw it on YouTube and you thought it was cute, 
you're completely unaware that the proper term is a Banto knot and it's named after the large ethnic group in the sub-Saharan Africa. It's not minibun tutorial. Um, and that's the biggest problem with magazines and white celebrities who co-opt these black hairstyles. They're never giving credit where the credit's due. It's just another cool hairstyle. They're taking the traditional hairstyles and renaming them with white names, like Ghana braids or cornrows have become boxer braids. And Fanuli braids were changed to bow braids, named after a 70s it girl group, Bo Derek. By taking these styles and not giving the credit to the originator, they're literally erasing the black hair culture. And black hair culture, it's a really important thing because when black people were forcibly brought to North America and the Caribbean, their hair was politicised. There was even a time where they, where they legally had to cover their hair in public. And now we see some people who can appropriate these hairstyles and it's fine, while other people are considered unprofessional or ghetto. That's the whitewashing of the situation. And look, no one can tell you how you should wear your hair, but you do need to take the time to ask, have I appropriated black hair? And in short, in my opinion, if you've ever worn any of the styles mentioned, then you have. But it's not the end of the world. Obviously, no one can stop you from wearing your hair how you want. So if you still want to wear a braided hairstyle, there are some steps you can take before making your way to the salon, which I have, have kind of put into to three points. One is obviously educate yourself. Many braided hairstyles do have cultural significance. So make sure you know yourself on the style you're getting. Like, make sure you know that Fanula braids, for example, come from the Fanula people, and it's common for Fanula women to add beads or cowrie shells to the braids, according to Africa.com. Like, I didn't have to dig deep to find this stuff, guys. The beads aren't just for aesthetics either. They hold a really special significance. Young girls attach their family's silver coins and amber to the braids as a heritage symbol. Also, make sure you're ready for the maintenance of the braided styles. For many people of colour and women of colour, they wear their braids as a protective style since their hair is kinkier. It's got more grip than straight hair. So don't be surprised if your style doesn't have the same longevity as someone with like natural hair. And it's really disrespectful to just do this hair and let it go foul. Like it has so much history in it. You need to be ready for the cultural significance you're going to take on. Two is go to a black stylist. And I'm not saying white people can't do intricate braiding hairstyles, but like if you're going to go and do this traditional style, why not go to a, a, a person of colour who's a stylist? For many people of colour, women of colour, stylists, the salon is a place of community as well where you will be integrated into the community that you're engaging with. And in many ways, that will help you not be appropriating that culture. Um, and you're putting your money back into the community. Like, if you're getting cute hair out of it, they should at least get your dollars. And then three is use the proper terminology. I This is what really got me across the line with the why what became an issue for me personally is that it's just so important, especially since the mainstream media loves to ignore the cultural significance of these hairstyles. Crediting the inspiration for it, you know, is important because it it elevates the culture to the same level as, you know, a blowout bar has. Like, it seems stupid, I know, but it's it's about giving credit where credit's due. So instead of just going on Instagram and calling your new hairstyle boxer braids, use the proper term. Use cornrows instead. Sharing the cultures is inevitable. 
that's the world. Like us sharing our cultures is inevitable, but just make sure you're not ignoring the culture or customs of the certain group in doing so. And that was my like three points about how you could approach the situation and still, you know, be integrated into it. This is Radical Fashionism with Christian and Andy. Is this the voicemail of local singer, fashion icon and RM Williams boots wearer Kyle Linehan? Because if it is, I have a very, very important question for you. Andy and I were wondering if there was any chance that you could come onto our podcast to talk to us about cultural appropriation because... Well, between Andy and I, we have, like, one brain cell, but you've got at least two to yourself. So that, like, bumps us up dramatically. If you could just, like, hop into your teleporting machine and come to the studio, that would be amazing. I love you so much. Bye, 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 bye. We have a very exciting guest with us today, a friend of ours and a friend of the podcast, long-time listener, first-time guest, Kyle. Hi. Welcome. Welcome. It's such a pleasure to be here. Kyle, you are a uh, musician. Yes. You are a model. Oh, I don't know. That's technical. And more importantly, for the topic we're discussing today, you are a person of colour. I am. Yes. Yes. Yeah. So I was uh, raised on the northern beaches of Sydney, which was an interesting place for a black person to be raised. I grew up in a place called Avalon, um, which is a beautiful little uh, suburb on the beaches. But yeah, I constantly felt othered up there. But actually, interestingly, it's kind of inspired a lot of the work that I create today. A lot of my, my music is inspired directly from that feeling of being othered. So in your childhood, I guess, where I want to start, did your family within the family unit have to champion black culture? Because obviously you weren't Mm -hmm. getting that from the outside world. So yeah, was it, did you find that it stopped at the front door of the home? Like... Yeah, um, in many ways, yeah. I mean, I I would definitely learn about black culture because obviously that seems to be the... uh, the defining culture of of uh, our generation um, through music and fashion and whatever. But a lot of that started with my mum in the home. And uh, my mum's from the West Indies originally, and she grew up in the UK. So um, I don't know, she actually called me the other day and she was talking about this show, Black AF, mm. how she loved this, uh, this scene where one of the characters... Um, uh, Quincy Jones's daughter, actually, Rashida Jones, uh, yeah. the mother of the series, was watching her kids dance on um in front of uh, the rest of her family and having this cringing moment like please dance well like be be black you know be as black as i as i need you to be in this moment don't embarrass me in front of my black family um and my mom was like she could totally relate to that experience because she's just like you know it's kind of her role as the matriarch of her family to bring black culture to her kids. Yeah, and so, champion yeah. it. And, and also, mm. I suppose, make sure it's a safe space where you can also discover that side of yourself and not feel as though it's something that you need to, like, diminish. Yeah, exactly. On the topic of cultural appropriation, uh, h- how do you define it as a queer person of colour? I would basically define it as sort of adopting some aspect of a different culture, basically taking it away from its cultural roots and an inauthentic uh, appropriation of that specific aspect of a culture. And I think that demeans the culture as a whole because you're not actively like engaging with the culture or the people from it. 
You're just kind of taking one aspect from it. I recently read this interview from this English designer, this white woman, and she did a bunch of hijabs with Muslim symbols on it. And basically Ah, she was being interviewed and they were saying to her, as a white woman, you are able to use this symbol Mm. and not be persecuted. But if a Muslim woman were to wear this or even to use it in her collection, she absolutely would be. Oh, definitely. Like you need to check that privilege and the fact that you might think that you're doing something, but you're absolutely just relying on the privilege of being a white person and the ability to do that. And also, I think in that campaign, using a whole bunch of white women to display that imagery is kind of like, well, you're just kind of sticking it on someone who's not going to get persecuted. And I don't really think that pushes anyone forward. You know, there's there's a way that you can culturally engage with other cultures respectfully. You can contact members of that community and ask them to be a part of your brand or developing textiles in your line. You can educate yourself and have conversations. Like there are so many ways that we can positively engage with other cultures and other experiences uh, rather than just ripping something off and putting your name on it. Yeah, the the inclusion of the original culture really kind of does seem to be such an obvious (laughs) way to... It is obvious, isn't it? To to change it from appropriation to appreciation. Yeah, totally. And I think histories of exploitation, like, definitely play into that narrative. Like, you need to identify a context and understand the histories that are involved with the people that you might be adapting or playing off. Because we can't say that as artists i mean it's particularly as an like a musician i definitely rip off stuff all the time yeah like i like and i think all artists do you um you're constantly taking ideas and mashing them up and um and making reference to things that exactly you. or ideas at least and bouncing off those concepts and i think it, the point is it's a really thin line between appropriation and homage no ideas are original like we all as creatives are adopting new ideas, but I feel like the most important aspect of creation is to be respectful to where inspiration comes from. In something that was kind of a bit closer to home in the fashion world, I really appreciated a few years ago now, Camilla did a collection with the Walu arts community, and basically she went out to this Indigenous community and they inspired and drew a lot of prints and stuff for her, which she used in her collection. And I think that that completely changed the narrative with the things that she was doing Mm. in her ode to Australian fashion. You know, she had included these Indigenous Australians in the creation of these things. If I ask you, what what sort of questions do you think people should be asking if they want to better themselves in the issue of appropriation? The questions that people should be asking themselves is, does this feel authentic? Because I feel like, Authenticity is key. You know what you're looking at when you see it. You know whether it's just been slapped on someone's head or if there's a through line, there's a story. And if you can't see that, then do some research. Have a look. Follow people of colour. You know, support. Buy black-owned products from a black-owned business, you know. I think being able to locate a through line from the inception of an idea and who created it, and then being able to see it on the market and support it is important. Yeah, and I also think, and perhaps this is, I mean, it might be a bad thing, it might be a good thing, but in today's day and age, if there is an inclusion of an outside community than the one that's just manufacturing it, it will be publicly stated. 
you know, if they have queer artists that are helping design a pride collection, that's that's going to be stated on the thing, you know. Yeah, and I feel like that's the thing you need to look for. That's the authenticity I'm talking about. So representation is really key in breaking down, or slowly breaking down the ideas of cultural appropriation. It's about getting the people who created the item the same platform as the yeah. item we're appropriating. That, yeah. that is how we can differentiate, one of the tools we can use to differentiate appropriation to exploitation, to yes. appreciation. And I think that is maybe where a lot of white people, like myself, we're only just getting to that point. Like I'm only just getting to the, like getting past that, oh, that's good that they're included, to the, no, the object's included. The people aren't. Yeah. It's, it is inherently about the people. And I think I've really done some like hardcore sitting down and thinking that, oh, how I was raised has made me think a certain way. Definitely. Like I really, yeah. And I think that as hard as it is, and look, I know that the vast majority of our audience listening to this podcast is white. And it's really scary to sit down and think, I am inherently racist inside myself and I have to do an uphill battle climb to get over that. And it's terrifying. But, geez, it is worth it. And it re- you really can see it in, like, once you start to check your bullshit, you, you, will, you will see yourself move forward with it and, and, and getting those tools is good. I also want to say that that's an experience that I have as a person of colour as well. We're all brought up in this society that values white centrism, that is Eurocentristic. So we have that idea that the central role in this movie or play or life will be mm-hmm. a white lead male. Yep, and, yep. Um, and every other person surrounding that person is a supporting role or yep. a background character or is not uh, of the same worth. So that narrative is something that I've grown up with too. And I have to also unpack and also unlearn. So it's, it's a lesson that all of us have to learn. And um, so it's not necessarily just white people listening to this that will have to do that work. We all do. We've been handed the proverbial baton, basically, to move things forward, to do better and to be better. And I feel like now is the time to educate yourself about where you buy your clothes, where they come from, who makes them, who inspires them, and really do the work and push it forward. And I want to make it about being positively uplifting. We need to find out where the stories come from and actively be involved in pushing a new chapter forward in fashion. That kind of reminds me of the um, the Stonewall film that was made a few years ago, and the, <gasps> where they put the white gay as the lead. The lead, the lead was a white gay who oh. threw the first stone at Stonewall when really it was Marsha P. Johnson who was a black um, trans, trans woman, and you know the, the fact that they completely just rewrote history. Like, How? is that not <laughs> such? But also, like, if you're making a movie. And you have the opportunity to put in a Marsha P character. Are you not like, this is yeah. box office gold? Just listen to her name, Marsha like, P. Johnson. And you would jump at that chance because that woman was a character. Well, thank you so much for coming on, Kyle. My pleasure. And it feels like you've been part of the family for a long time, so it's nice to kind of have you really here. Love you us. guys. Love you. Yeah, you're all right. How dare you. <laughs> 
Hi, thanks for calling. Leave a message and I'll get right back to you. Bye. Hi, Dad. Um, so I just got an email from the stool people. I know that you keep asking. Um, when they said that it would be eight weeks, four weeks ago, that means that it's still going to be another four weeks from today. You keep asking if they're ready yet. They said eight weeks. It's been four weeks. Please stop asking. It's like kind of driving me a little insane. I love you so much. If you could pick up like an aubergine and a zucchini when you get home, I'd really love you forever. Love you so much. Bye. Why are you dealing with your dad's stool sample? Radical Fashionism was presented by Christian Wilkins and Andy Kelly, created in collaboration with Podcast One Australia. Producer Alex Mitchell, executive producer Jennifer Goggin. Sound production by Darcy Thompson. For more episodes, listen for free at podcastoneaustralia.com.au or download the Podcast One Australia app.